ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Drew Davendale. Hola. And just to continue our series of incredibly happy life-reaffirming films, we've decided to take a look at Birth of a Nation in both the 1915 and 2016 flavours. So you know you're in for a fun ride with those two. It's going to be a laugh riot. A hoot, a hoot is what it will be. Boosha basha, boosha basha. <laughs> and if anyone actually gets that reference, please tell us because <laughs> we'll be very, very genuinely delighted. <laughs> Answers on a postcard. So uh, shall we just dive straight into the, the joys of Birth of a Nation in 1915 and just get it over with? I'd always wondered what the silent movie title card equivalent of I'm Not Racist But was. D.W. Griffiths rides to the rescue on that score. I am pleased that that is the phrase you use because that was exactly, in my mind, it's a <laughs> title card that is basically straight out of the 1915 version of the Daily Mail. It's, I am not yes. racist, but absolutely is that. But I, I suppose we should place the film in the time of its creation, which was, as I mentioned, space year 1915. Still very much the infancy of the Hollywood film industry, which, if you'll permit a gross simplification largely consisted of the comedy pratfalls of the likes of Chaplin and Arbuckle or the powerhouse that was Cecil B. DeMille. Fourteen directorial credits in 1915, including nine of the top-grossing films of the year. Europe, of course, had other concerns during this time frame. The top-grossing film in 1915, however, was the groundbreaking Birth of a Nation, a three-hour-long adaptation in an era where less substantial one-hour films were the norm, inasmuch as there was a norm for any of this cinema malarkey. DeMille's Carmen, which was the second top-grossing film of 1915, took about $150,000, which is a nice return in 1915 money. And while the accounting for this is obtuse due to the way it was distributed, estimates place the Birth of a Nation as taking somewhere between 10 and $100 million dollars orders of magnitude more and adjusted for inflation well into the range of today's blockbuster take. So, well kent, as you may say. Now, you may have noticed I've glossed over what this was an adaptation of. The Klansman, also the film's original title, ought to be setting alarm bells ringing, but particularly given the subtitle A Historical Romance of the Ku Klux Klan. So, not a Highlander fanfic, sadly. No, nor something set in the pub and still game. <laughs> the first half of the film covers the American Civil War itself, and ignoring certain very large aspects, which we'll get to, is barely reprehensible at all. Comparatively. It's focusing on two respected families whose younger scions are friendly with each other, the Stonemans in the north and the Camerons in the south, who will soon find themselves on opposite sides of the Civil War. This in particular would threaten the possible relationship between Henry Walthall's Colonel Ben Cameron and Lillian Gish's Elsie, daughter of the Honourable Austin Stoneman, leader of the house and barely-veiled Thaddeus Stevens surrogate. Now, I'm no expert in the era, but it seems uncontroversial enough to state that in terms of filmmaking scale and technique, this was a leap forward. With a then-huge production budget, this managed to show large-scale scenes, in particular battle sequences, that were a far cry from the usual closer-to-filmed plays that were still common. It's also an early showing for things taken for granted today, things like close-ups and the bespoke score, and in this respect, it's argued, this still makes the film relevant today. Now, Perhaps the most immediately obvious thing I've glossed over so far is the extensive use of blackface. White actors made up to look black with extremely limited success. Uh, it's Which is to n- say, none. Yes. And it's not like it was alone in using this, and it's still depressingly widespread use until fairly recently. Um, the, what was it, the Black and White Mystery Show was still being on the BBC till the mid-70s or something like that, and even then it was. it's not like it was reviled at the time, it was still drawing in pretty good crowds. Um, uh, yes, the, the 70s um, was a bad time 
things like wasn't the seventies when Love Thy Neighbor was on? Yes, that sort of thing, and um, was a bad, um, bad time <laughs> here, and that's here where things weren't ever quite so bad as they were in the United States. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think any modern audience ever is going to disagree that this was a reprehensible practice. So, while there is a school of thought that you shouldn't hold any artifact of the time that was made responsible for the norms of that time, I don't hold with that school. And anyway, given the content of the film, it's uniquely appalling here. Try and imagine watching this as an African-American, with their portrayal here, and being told through the casting choices that we don't even think an African-American could convincingly live up to these low standards. (laughs) And, Jesus, what low standards they are. The very few slaves you might want to argue are seen in anything approaching a positive light are essentially happily subservient Uncle Toms, e.g. credited as Mammy the Faithful Servant. And while anyone black or white with the temerity to suggest that human beings are born equal and ought to be treated as such, is shown as a monster, almost literally in the case of George Siegmund's Silas Lynch, the mulatto lieutenant governor as the credits would have it. Uh, The second half of the film, set after the assassination of Lincoln by the coward Robert Ford at Dealey Plaza, sees Stoneman and his radical buddies take control of the government agenda and force through harsher terms on the slave states. With the softly, softly approach out of the window, Lynch starts orchestrating a power grab, encouraging black voters to vote for black candidates, almost as though they're real people or something, marginalising those poor white people who find their former possessions in a surprisingly unforgiving mood. Soon, feeling oppressed and threatened by this turn of events, and on a personal level, Ben Cameron's worries about Lynch's designs on his squeeze Elsie Stoneman, Cameron creates the KKK to defend his oppressed minority, and eventually intimidate black voters into not voting under the threat of death. Land of the free, and the home of the brave. This film's attitude is perhaps best encapsulated by the intertitle, The former enemies of North and South are united again in defence of their air and birthright. There is no positive way to use the word birthright. Yes, <laughs> it's always negative, and it just it, it's particularly glaring in that in that card that comes up. Let alone the use of the word Aryan. <laughs> Textbook white supremacist uh, language, and frankly, even if we were going to take on face value this film's account of the horrors of the Reconstruction from the white perspective, it's still nothing uh, that's going to excuse the goddamned KKK. The film, of course, takes time out to make sure that any white people that sympathise with the blacks is also seen as a coward or a hypocrite, Stoneman in particular, but it's the portrayal of black people that really makes this a real treat for bigots. It shows them as barely removed from beasts, and I think that's understating it. It is jaw-droppingly offensive on every level in ways that I don't think we even really need to ludicate on. We've not moved on anywhere like enough on race relations in the last hundred years, but I think the one thing we've all settled on is that this is some completely indefensible garbage. Uh, well, at least in terms of its narrative of Reconstruction era black bashing, clan louding horsemeer, the question of its technical worth, I suppose, still remains. For my money, any lessons that this could teach have been taken, refined and expanded on so much that they're not worth learning anymore than if you were going to learn computer programming, you wouldn't spend your time looking at a very elegant series of punched cards as anything other than a curiosity. Perhaps you could level the same point as something like Citizen Kane and at least hear that argument, but Citizen Kane still has a great story that as a small bonus, isn't stupendously racist. Uh, Even if you are better at separating the technique from the content than I am, I'd still contend there's nothing of value here in terms of storytelling that you couldn't get from less offensive films, or plays, or novels, and the more technical aspects, while groundbreaking for the time, would like be looking at a George Millet film as an instructional tool for 3D rendering software. It has been left behind and does not deserve to be dredged up in the modern era as anything other than a cautionary tale. Despite what Griffiths' title cards would have us think, that is not an argument for censorship. It is just not engaging with an argument that very obviously has no worth to it. No platform this film, my fellow snowflakes.
Yes, this film, uh, which I had been curious about for a number of years. One of those films that I felt at some point in my life I'd be compelled to watch, uh, hmm. not for the purposes of entertainment, uh, <laughs> more as a, a curiosity practice, certainly a, a historical document. Not in the same way that, um, and I have tried once to read it and I never tried again, but may do at some point in the future. I did try once to read Mein Kampf for the purposes of like, that the person that wrote that book having had such a dire impact in the world i kind of hmm. thought it would be interesting at least intellectually to to kind of understand the thoughts obviously i'm not going yeah. to agree with them but to understand that whereas the birth of a nation doesn't really f- have that no because it falls in more and again this was something else that i watched for in the same way that i watched this many many years ago now but the eternal jew and those films share something in that they are just the most ridiculous propaganda hmm. and they're so ridiculous so patently ridiculous and so over the top that for a lot of it i was expecting to be deeply 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 offended by this and it's just so ludicrous that i actually for most of it couldn't find myself being offended when it's horrible and ridiculous (laughs) but it was just so daft quite frankly that anybody could believe this nonsense yeah um so i i didn't actually feel quite as dirty and uncomfortable watching this as i expected simply because it was just so crazy it really Particularly with the way that the slaves are portrayed and the ones with the really, really terrible makeup. The way they're portrayed is like one step shy of the way that Jews are portrayed with horns. I like that bit in the at the start of Borat with the running of the Jews. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost on that level of ludicrousness with the portrayal of black people as oh, I'm not even sure how you would put it, primitives maybe. It's just so ridiculous. Which is not to say that I wasn't offended by a great deal of it, just not as much as I expected because Everything about it was just so stupid. <laughs> now, um, so yeah, from that point of view of being like a, a historical curiosity, then it, I suppose it was interesting enough to watch. Though I am definitely not going to recommend that most people do that. Hmm. Whereas it, do back to my point of something like Mein Kampf, which is actually, I think, to understand 20th century history may actually be a useful thing to read. I don't think you're going to understand an awful lot about history from watching this film, right. other than that for this film to be that popular, the stereotypes in this film must have been, if not widely held, at least widely believed after watching it, which is makes me genuinely worry, and not for the first time, about the the credulousness and the intellectual capacity of the general public. Um, <laughs> it is, though, I'm going to rather than talk about the nature of the film, um, or the contents, rather, I'm going to talk more about it technically, and actually, in many regards, it's a pretty terrible film. It's like you mentioned uh, with Citizen Kane, Scott, Citizen Kane was a like a groundbreaking technical film, but has this very, very compelling story and great performances, whereas the acting in The Birth of a Nation is almost universally awful, which really surprised me. I, I didn't have any preconception at all about what the performances would be like, but there is, with the exception maybe of the Thaddeus Stevens analogue, Stoneman, with the exception of him, everybody's almost like, I don't know, Somebody from a pantomime or worse, they're just, it's terrible. Like, for instance, the the little sister of yeah. the Camerons. The original girl that plays her when she's younger is kind of just there. But then the girl that, or the woman that plays her when she grows up a little, seems to be perpetually amused in every scene. <laughs> I'm hiding in a basement and I'm smiling and laughing all the time. At the, you... Particularly given what she was hiding in the basement from exactly. that particular scene. Uh, um, I know there's always a certain lack of subtlety in these silent works, but still. <laughs> yeah, and then... The mulatto housekeeper of Stoneman with her terrible makeup on, and <laughs> for as much as the the makeup 
so it makes the eyes more prominent. The most ridiculous wide-eyed gurning um, hmm. straight to camera for every scene that she's in. And the whole film is full of that. So acting-wise, it's genuinely appalling. Um, <laughs> and yes, I know that they don't have dialogue, but it is, it's just genuinely terrible. There are technical achievements in it, as you mentioned. I mean, the fact that it was such a phenomenally long film for the time is is incredible. And, and yeah. the shots they've managed to get with the movement, given how limited they were by yes. by film stock, by shutter speed, by the equipment, etc., and the location that they could go to, hmm. it's genuinely ambitious, and that's kind of impressive. So yeah, while they're technically ambitious and competent, or beyond competent, really, and to make that, to make a three-hour, 50-minute film in 1915 with all of those action scenes and so many people and the movement of people and horses and things. Yeah. Clearly, Griffith was a skilled filmmaker. Wasn't an artist, though, because there's basically about two artful scenes in the whole film. I mean, again, limited by what you can do, I guess, with camera mm. movement and camera placement, but yeah. so much of it is just so static, may be the word. Certainly very <laughs> perfunctory. Um, yeah. But yeah, the art of the dolly was not quite invented for something like cameras no, those size, though. Was it? But, um, but you can look back at other films like, from the time, and I'm glad you mentioned Georges Méliès because I was going to mention him. Méliès's mm. films, while they don't stand up now technically, and possibly not even storytelling wise, Méliès's films undeniably have both art and charm. Oh yeah. So you absolutely can watch them now and appreciate them. Whereas visually, there's not really much enjoyable to look at in The Birth of a Nation. So as just an entertaining film oh well and you really careful with the word entertaining um, because of its content but it's like artistically it's a bit of a bum note it strikes a bit of a bum note it's not an awful lot there artistically historically it's the effects of the film that are important rather than what it covers because it's just such a a skewed ridiculously skewed in fact version of the events of the reconstruction era to the point where i, I again genuinely worry about the, the intellectual capabilities of people watching this hmm. Yeah, so artistically, it's a big fat zero, this film. Um, technically, yes, impressive, but what makes this film interesting is that it was so insanely popular, I say, yeah. um, or literally orders of magnitude, even on the lower end of the the estimates for how much money it really made, orders of magnitude more successful than any of its peers. But it's the fact that this film gave rise to basically the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan and massive aggression and violence against black people as a result, mm. <laughs> as well as also Griffith himself making a film the next year called Intolerance that was all about, oh, these people didn't respond well to my film. Yeah. Oh, he's all butthurt because people didn't <laughs> um, agree with the nonsense in his propaganda film. The strange thing is, right, we were talking earlier about that um, that title card, the disclaimer that you had up front. Yeah. Um, have you got there? Could you read that out? Because what struck me as strange when I was looking at that title card and also the things that he was saying after it is that he, it's almost as though Griffiths thought he was being protested against because he was showing the civil war. <laughs> uh, it's like he was, I, I need to be allowed to show that war is hell, but it seems to be effectively what he's saying. But that is not why people were upset about his film. I wonder if he was actually just wrong about that. Uh, if and he's, also, he's it's got not, the wrong end of the stick. It's not something that his film shows in any way. And if you remind me, Scott, because I'd like to come back to um, the war afterwards, because you've just reminded me of something I wanted to talk about with the film. That yes. A plea for the art of the motion picture. We do not fear censorship, for we have no wish to offend with improprieties or obscenities, but we do demand, as a right, the liberty to show the dark side of wrong, that we may illuminate the bright side of virtue. 
the same liberty that is conceded to the art of the written word. That art to which we owe the Bible and the works of Shakespeare. Oh, he's so self-important, isn't he? <laughs> okay, then the next card goes on to say, If in this work we have conveyed to the mind the ravages of war to the end that war be may, may be held in abhorrence, this effort will not have been in vain. Yes, because the abhorrence of war it was entirely the point of your film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see what I mean? It just, it just sounds like he's... <laughs> and, and surely it can't have been. I think everyone was quite clear about what was upsetting about this even at the time. But uh, it seems like he's far more concerned about being, oh, you can't criticise war, but we're not criticising war, we're criticising the way that you've shot black people, you yes. crazy mofo. It's not good, it's not good at all. It's, I can't find a particular card, just now that there's a card to about, and we don't want to show any race in any particular bad way, but, but the, the suggestion <laughs> but, of, of I'm not racist, but yes, but yes yeah. these were the, the way these primitive black people were like. Yes, I took that to the film, and what I wanted to mention earlier, and um, I'd gone to make the point. I said, this is a three hour, 15 minute film, which was ambitious technically at the time. I can't work out why it's three hours, 15 minutes, so because it basically takes three hours, 15 minutes to barely tell a story. <laughs> because actually, there isn't all that much of a story in it, and I don't understand why it takes them so long. Especially because the first almost an hour and a half covers elements of the American Civil War, and it's largely irrelevant to how the rest of the story goes. Yeah. You could have had one card that said the brothers were friends and then found themselves on opposite sides cut to Reconstruction era. Yeah. And also, I mean, I did think too that the knowledge about the war would have been more in the mind in 1915, it being just 50 years after the end of the war. Mm. Still, 50 years is a long time. The fact that it just assumes so much knowledge about the, the events of the American Civil War kind of struck me as odd because there's a one card comes up and it's a conqueror marches to the sea and like well that was about sherman going through the south to george and eventually to atlanta but it doesn't actually mention that so it's relying on people knowing that and i just wonder how certainly now i think that knowledge isn't hugely well known that people wouldn't understand that that referred to sherman yeah i I would i didn't know it was sherman i mean i I knew the general uh gist of the way the advance went but mm-hmm. as the who was the shit that particular yeah no, so uh, the, the conqueror marches to the sea was definitely about sherman um yeah and his march through georgia but why they just assumed that knowledge is strange especially given it took so long to not tell anything else nothing much is happening there yeah yes it's well it's a strange film for something that had such a powerful effect as a story it fails it fails acting wise it fails as a piece of art it succeeds on a technical level and that's it. <laughs> so I, I just find it strange that, well, certainly to me, something that was so ineffectual was in fact in some ways so effective. <laughs> For all that I said that I wasn't as offended as I thought, it's because well, I'm not insane and I don't think any of those portrayals of people or any of the ridiculous arguments they make are in any way on, in the same universe as approaching valid. But So I wasn't as offended as I expected. But it's still a massively offensive film. It's horrible. Uh, and it, basically has no redeeming features and as Scott said earlier there is there's very little merit even beyond just being some sort of historical curiosity in watching this yeah which is good I suppose because I don't really want this to have any power or relevance um, anymore but for something to consider a cinematic classic it's not it really really is not yeah <laughs> yeah like as as you say it's, it's just the cultural effects ran far deeper than anything that the film really deserves and mm. uh, that's worth reading about, but it's not worth really subjecting yourself to the film. 
which no. is way too damned long and way too damned offensive to <laughs> really have any and Just uh, way too damned bad also. Yeah, yeah. yeah so if, that's what we've discovered. Well, it's a, a deeply offensive film we discovered that this titan of cinema, and it was, I don't think it was tremendously long ago, it was one of the films submitted to the National Library of Congress, yeah. um, which is absolutely understandable because films are selected on artistic merit or on cultural importance and absolutely given the effects it had things like the the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan and it deserves to be in there but I just kind of assumed um, foolishly apparently that it would have had some sort of artistic merit as well yeah but no it doesn't nope <laughs> so ju- just yes as Scott says read about it and understand just that it's, it's a very very unpleasant thing this film and don't ever bother watching it you will be wasting your time <laughs> yes unless you're really really interested in the the history of cinema, then I wouldn't watch it. You can just read about it. Yes. So, will we jump forward a century, Scott? Yes. Okay then, so after D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation 1915, director Nate Parker deliberately took the title of that hideous film for the title of his 2016 directorial debut. Griffith's film provoked a resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan and an increase in violence against black citizens. Parker hoped to have a similarly powerful effect, but with a much more positive influence. This, The Birth of a Nation, is a biopic, telling the relatively little-known story of Nat Turner, a slave preacher who led an uprising of his fellow slaves against their captors in Virginia in 1831. In an early scene, the boy Nat is marked out for glory, a prophet who would lead his oppressed people, something which becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. This journey begins when Nat steals a book and teaches himself to read, a feat which simply amazes Penelope Ann Miller's Elizabeth Turner, the wife of Nat's master. Elizabeth takes it upon herself to teach young Nat using the Bible. Years later, as an adult, we see him eventually become a preacher to his unfortunate fellows. The old master Turner is dead, and his son Samuel, Army Hammer, once Nat's childhood playmate, is now in charge. Nat and Samuel's relationship appears reasonably genial, and it seems that Nat likes and even trusts Samuel. But after Nat is hired out to surrounding farms to preach calmness to their uppity slaves and quell fears of an uprising, he belatedly comes to the realisation that there is no such thing as the good and kindly master. There is only evil, and less evil. Further abhorrent actions by Samuel and other slaveholders awakens purpose in that, and he begins to organise the slaves, who see him as their messiah. The end result is the two-day rebellion, which saw the deaths of many white slaveholding families and the deaths of considerably more black people in retaliation. The birth of a nation is populated by singularly evil people for whom unspeakable acts of cruelty and barbarity are common, everyday, mundane. That matter-of-factness really magnifies the horror of what these slaves had to suffer. That matter-of-factness really magnifies the horror of what these slaves had to suffer and the immense difficulty that the likes of Turner had in improving their lot. And those are amongst the most affecting moments in the film. Turner's deep knowledge of biblical scripture ironically afforded him by his white jailers, leads to some satisfying scenes when he turns his slaveholders' own justifications for their positions against him. Though it's not at all clear if Turner, or indeed Parker, is aware of the ridiculousness of a book whose contradictions and hypocrisies allow it to be used both for (laughs) and against the same thing. The acting throughout is at least competent and in some places strong. It's well shot. In fact, in many places it's beautiful, and that juxtaposition of picturesque landscapes in which true horror is perpetrated is affecting. But in many respects, it's uneven, and Mm. the visions are simply a distraction. Mm. And its climax is a bit too heroic. 
a bit to Braveheart. It is also very much a man's film, told from a man's perspective. The male slaves in birth may have very little agency, but the women have none, and their role is too often portrayed as a victim for the purposes of having a man seek revenge. It sadly also lacks room for much nuance or complication, though it does explore the crossover between religion and capitalism that was such an important part of the justification of the southern economy at the time. It's certainly interesting, and with the regular caveat of one requiring the ability to separate the art from the artist, it's something that I would recommend seeing. It is, in almost every way, a mainstream film, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but while it has some shocking moments, and a righteous anger, its ensconcement inside of the comfort of mainstream structure and storytelling, and its use of pretty much every attendant cliché, blunts its edge and robs it of power. Additionally, though Nat Turner's story is worthy of telling, and too little known, Parker's film is a contemporarily relevant polemic, but also a revenge film, and if you want to watch an anti-Bellamera revisionist revenge film, then your first stop should be Django Unchained, which, lack of historical basis aside, is the superior of this film in every conceivable way. Should you have time for two such films, though, then you could make The Birth of a Nation your second stop. Yeah, I mean, the satisfying narrative for this episode demanded that this be a triumph, but reality does have a way of getting (laughs) in the way of those plans, doesn't it? It does indeed, Uh, yes. I mean, to be clear, I would rather watch this a hundred times consecutively than watch uh, (laughs) uh, The the Birth of a Nation in 1915 again. But yeah, I think primarily for me the problem with this film is the tone. Clearly for a lot of the films going for this sort of sweeping emotional affecting story arc. You know, I mean the score kind of backs that up, but particularly towards the final reels, as you mentioned, it's much closer to Django Unchained than 12 Years a Slave. Yeah. Um, And it just feels, for want of a better term, cheesy. Yeah, that's Uh, why I particularly mentioned about this mainstream structure and cliches, because it does use pretty much every cliche for that era and stories about slaves and things at the time as well as just like a general middle of the road middle brow drama of this type i use them all yeah. and cheesy is a good word for a lot of it and, and you mentioned the score too it's quite didactic in places that score yeah. and a lot of what's in it is is entirely worthy of being told it's just how it's been told i don't particularly like but so i'll let you continue yeah no i mean that's that's what i was getting on to it is very um obvious in the way that it's trying to manipulate you um mm-hmm. and look every film's trying to do that to, to you know greater or lesser degree but it seems most of them have a better way of hiding it than this does which is very clearly trying to prompt you down certain directions where you should really be hitting there by yourself I and mean, it just feels like a minor insult <laughs> a lot of it i mean it's a well put together film for the most part it's got better than average performances um parker himself does well and um, army hammer does much better than i would have expected when a Found out that Army Hammer was in it. Uh, but it's not quite the rallying cry that it thinks it is and perhaps ought to have been. It's not bad, but as we said for a lot of things, you know, for a while this was being talked about as, as an Oscar contender. I cannot for the life of me see where that was coming from. No um, it's not It's not even the best film about slavery in the past few years, let alone of any greater time frame. It's just yeah, it's, it's clearly sub substandard to um, Twelve Years a Slave, and you know even Lincoln, and that wasn't even about slavery, really. Yeah, or even <laughs> like um, the Free State of Jones, which yeah. was sort of tangentially about that. Um, yeah, that that's a better film too. But Twelve Years a Slave is is powerful mm. and raw, and there are moments in this that evoke that same sort of feeling. Some points, but there is one scene which is it's nigh on unwatchable, which is the scene where a slave is force fed, um, who's on hunger strike. Mm. That was yeah. horrific. That's a yeah. 
gruesome, isn't it? Let's yes, go. and yes, and absolutely should be in there because, and that's what I mentioned earlier about how that's that sort of treatment has become mundane, and that's that's how it's even more evil and how bad it is because that's just what they did to people without even thinking about it. Mm. But yes, it's very the rest of it's very ordinary. It clearly thinks it's very special, mm-hmm. and it's by yes, by no means a bad film, but it's yes, it's not anything like as as big or as clever as it believes itself to be. Yeah. A swither about whether to talk about these things, but you did kind of obliquely mention it there. And mm-hmm. between that and the um talking about the the way that women are treated in this film, the allegations of Nat Parker that was that had been put forward. Uh, when I'd first heard about it, I thought it was kind of a bit overblown because you know he'd he'd been on trial and acquitted and I thought, well that's that seems to be a due process served its purpose and so on and I didn't see quite why he was being so uh, beaten up about these sort of allegations of uh, abuse. But then he, he himself has kind of went on and agreed that, you know, think there was more to it than was covered in that case. And is, well, as dutifully penitent as you would be in a PR for a junket for these kind of things. And it's clearly har- harmed to this film and the reputation of himself and what the film had. I, again, it's one of these things, can you separate the art from the artist in this respect? It, the question kind of gets ended around because I don't think this is actually all that good a film anyway. Hmm. Uh, so it kind of took care of that for, by itself. But uh, Yes, but yeah, it's worth... more difficult when the, to separate art from the artist when the problem, the controversy of the artist is actually something that's at least touched upon in the, in yeah, the exactly. art. You're at least verging on... The, the realms of irony and hypocrisy. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, and also it's because the thing that he was accused of is used as a tool for mm. the storytelling. Again, very probably and factually based, but yeah. the women in this film are so ill-served because they are basically, the men are supposed to be free, the women are still property, except they're just supposed to be property of their husbands rather than property of the white slaveholders. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So when the film deals with what the issues of the artist are about, to, and also because there's something sort of quite macho about some of the portrayals of the characters in this, not strongly sort of say, but it's there. And Nate Parker has also said some completely ridiculous things too, like basically pretty much anti-gay um, yeah. by tone, um, if not by actual word, uh, and saying that somehow I, I don't know where he's getting this from that black men in cinema are being emasculated. Shut up, you complete yes. bell end. He's not a fan of Moonlight, was he? He's trying to be progressive in one way, but some of um, his other attitudes are distinctly stone-aged. Yes. Um, <laughs> when that does necessarily and perhaps legitimately colour your interpretation of that, particularly when and for someone like, say, Roman Polanski, who's a strong director but usually in working off someone else's script so his influence may be less but when in this case parker was the writer and the actor and the director and the producer yeah yeah so <laughs> then it's like you can't you can't simply can't separate completely art from artist it's going to color your interpretation of it because it's clearly colored the production uh, i don't know it's that's always a very difficult issue to talk about to get around there because i don't know in, is because I think the argument comes down to, and this is in general rather than specifically about this film, but the argument comes down to is seeing this film in some way condoning or at least failing to condemn, hmm. or is it just like, well, you know, you just make keep it completely separate in your mind? That was a rather tricky thing to navigate, yeah. And I've, I normally come down on the side of the I, I try and separate it as much as possible, yeah, but it's so like you say, it's, it's easier in cases where it's something like, um, I, I don't know, say. 
Orson Scott Card, who I like a lot of his books, but the man himself, absolute totally. Yes, he's um, he's a pillock, um, and, yeah. and the very mildest um, words I'll think of to use with him. Yeah, but as you say, that's, that's much easier to do when Orson Scott Card is some dude sitting in Arkansas or wherever he's from, and what he's writing about is some silly space opera, um, yeah, as opposed to something like this, where you know, Nate Parker is far more, as you, as you say, just far more interleaved into every aspect yes. of it. A harder one to do in this case, and it's, it's one of the, the tougher ones in a way that has never really bothered me in a way that, as you mentioned, like a Roman Polanski film or a Woody Allen film did. I've normally got other bones to pick with Woody Allen films rather than... Yes, the Germany um, any any good, but... he's got. Yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely, because, I mean, Woody Allen is a little different in as much as that he generally writes his films too and acts in them, so he's more involved. But the topic of his films generally not got anything to do with um, the crimes of which he's been accused um, and mm. the bad behaviour with which he's associated Likewise, for the most part, Polanski ends up, he's more of just a director. But yeah, when you have somebody, in this case, you're so entwined with it, and it actually covers some of the topics that are at the yeah. root of the problem, and it becomes much less easy to, to separate the two. So a definitive answer on this topic is yes. <laughs> or possibly no. <laughs> Depending on how the question is phrased. And indeed what the question is. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've really got a lot more to say about Birth of the Nation. I was, I was genuinely hoping, uh, perhaps I shouldn't have been, really, but I guess more for the, the narrative of this podcast that it would be really good. And it's just, yeah, all right. Yeah, um, um, and I, I can't really recommend anyone go out of the way to see it. Not that it's a bad film, but, you know, there are much better things dealing with this sort of subject, if not this exact one. Um, yes, but, um, I think what we've discovered, Scott, is that between watching the 1915 The Birth of a Nation and the 2016 The Birth of a Nation, our recommendation is to watch Django Unchained by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and yeah. To be honest, I'm on board with that suggestion because I like that film a great deal. So. <laughs> but it's a surprising recommendation, but there we go. Yes, no, not you suspected we'd win a head-to-head match, but there we go. We've compared and contrasted and found them both wanting. So. I suspect that I enjoyed this film a little more than you. But I think we're both fairly close to thinking it's, you know, it's it's okay as a film. Yeah, yeah. It has some merits and certainly it has some problems, but it, it's past one of in a way that <laughs> the 1951 isn't. Yes, um, yes exactly. <laughs> but I think we can both absolutely agree, completely undeserving of the ludicrous amounts of praise that came out of the Sundance Echo Chamber yeah. last year. Oh, yes. It was not worthy of that at all. I'm not sure why it was so highly lauded but yeah not deserving of that i mean maybe it's because there are relatively few films of this type dealing with this type of story and certainly nate parker was dissuaded by many many people from making a film about nat turner saying that a mainstream film about a black slave leading a rebellion would not could not sell and in the end the birth of a nation ended up getting the biggest distribution deal that Sundance had ever seen yeah. and proving them wrong, although that was part of it, that that narrative pleased people. Yeah. film itself just isn't special. Not bad, but it's just not special. Yeah, uh, I agree. So again, though, to sum up, The Birth of a Nation, The Birth of a Nation, watch a Tarantino movie. Yes, Rogue's Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> that will wrap us up for this uh, episode, which I guess wasn't quite as soul-destroying as uh, last week's. Uh, no, I am yes. quite pleased to find that I wasn't testing the structural integrity of my arterial walls in the way that, for instance, the Magdalene sisters made me do. Yes. Well, one, one bit of feedback on the last uh, podcast from App Blake Wrights of the 
I'm the host podcast. Uh, couldn't weigh in on the last one. He'd not seen any of the flicks. And well, it's, as I mentioned, it's hard to really recommend a lot of those ones we spoke about either last time or here. Um, but if you want another depressing life slice, uh, the act of killing is both arresting and awful. Now, I've not seen that and I really do want to get to it. Uh, I think we're planning a documentary episode at some point in the not too distant future, which uh, it would certainly feature on that, I would hope. So, if you would like to get in touch with us at some point, we certainly encourage that. Uh, you could do so uh, on the Twitters, it's at FuzzOnFilm, on Facebook, facebook.com slash FuzzOnFilm, or through the emails, uh, that's podcast at FuzzOnFilm.com. And uh, that will wrap us up for now. We'll be back in another ten days with some arbitrarily selected films from this month. But until that time, I have been Scott Morris, and Drew, you've been Drew. I have, I can't deny it. Yet you do. You do, do, do. Goodbye. <laughs>